All right, so we are doing an Advent series just on two Sundays last week and this week, and the next week I'm gone, and then I'll be back for Christmas Day. And uh, we'll see in this sermon series leading up to Christmas last week and today uh, why Christmas, the birth of Christ, was so necessary. So as you might remember, last week we read and heard about Psalm chapter 2. And so there we heard about the people's rebellion. And this week we'll hear about the people's oppression And then on Christmas, we'll finally uh, see the answer to the people's rebellion, the people's oppression, in other words, the people's war. We'll see the arrival of Jesus, the people's peace. And so this week, we'll be hearing about the people's oppression. So keep that in mind as we read, starting at verse 22, the last verse of Isaiah chapter 8, and then going into our text for today. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for who, who, her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thus far the reading of God's word. Well, brothers and sisters, I wonder how many of you today recognized that passage that we just read together. I hope very many of you. It's a beautiful passage, isn't it? And it's well known. I think for very good reason, it's so well known. People are just drawn to this passage, aren't they? It's such a message of comfort and hope, especially at Christmas time, when we look forward to the arrival of a beautiful, magnificent, peaceful child, which we remember each Christmas day. And so let's dive right into the text and we'll set the scene. God's nation has crumbled. Israel has been splintered. The northern tribes of Israel, still called Israel, are fighting against the south, Judah. They're fighting against each other as well. The Israelites, God's chosen people, are at each other's throats. And at the same time, they're also under attack from every side. In particular, they're harassed by the ruthless Assyrian Empire. In the end of Isaiah 9, we have a vivid picture of what's going on. The destruction is compared to the total destruction of a forest. Trees are clear-cut 
right down to the ground. Not one tree is spared from the destruction. And then all the stumps are set on fire. Then no life remains. The whole land, even the briars and the thorns, we're told, the end of chapter 9, are consumed. That's the situation Judah is in. What is going on? I know what you're thinking. This doesn't sound like the message of beauty and hope we were promised. Pastor Tim, not what we signed up for. This is supposed to be a Christmas sermon. But as we heard last week, Christmas is a time of celebrating our freedom and joy and peace in Christ. But in order to even begin to understand that freedom and joy and peace, what we first need to understand is our hopelessness and despair and suffering and anguish apart from Christ. So last week we heard about the people's rebellion, and this week about the people's oppression. And we'll consider it in two parts. Living in the darkness, being liberated by the light. And it's not a pleasant place to start, but it's where we have to start in order to understand and praise our God for the freedom and hope and joy we now experience, or we we should experience in Christ. And our text today, we need to realize... This beautiful passage we all love, it comes into the context of the people of Judah feeling like they're on the brink of being completely overwhelmed, completely destroyed. These people were keenly aware that darkness and suffering and violence were all around them. To the south of Judah was a large and powerful Egyptian empire. To the north, Israel, which is fractured, And Syria had united together against the people of Judah. And just beyond that to the north, just beyond Syria and Israel, was a far bigger threat we've already heard about today. The great empire of Assyria. And there's something we need to know about Assyria in particular at the very beginning of this message. So throughout history, there have been lots of different empires, right? And they've had different strategies for how to gain land and and gain territory and resources and things like that. So, so the first strategy, you can think of maybe the empire of Rome, the Roman Empire. And so the Roman Empire, they had a huge army. Uh, they had great technology for fighting. Uh, but the way that they kind of overcame people was they offered them the chance of surrender. And the sales pitch, I guess, was surrender looked pretty good. The Romans would let you keep your way of life. You would get to benefit from their protection, from their great technology and Uh, There was very little downside, or so they would say. But the Assyrians were different. The Assyrians took a very different approach to conquering people. You could surrender, and life under them would be terrible. Taxes and subjugation would be fierce. But the alternative was so much worse. If you wouldn't bend the knees to the Assyrians, they would attack you ruthlessly. No one was as feared as the Assyrians. When people didn't surrender, they were brutal. They were tortured horrifically. And so Judah, you have to imagine, they're in a time of great anxiety and fear, aren't they? We can only compare it to the Cold War, maybe, of more recent times, where it seemed like battle was imminent. Uh, there were our, people were already struggling Uh, with peoples around them. There were little fights going on. And it seemed only a matter of time for Judah, for God's people. It was only a matter of time before they'd be overwhelmed and oppressed. And these Jews knew that darkness and great suffering were nearby. 
They felt like they needed to watch out or darkness could overcome that at any moment. And this, in a sense, can't push the comparison too far, but in a sense, this is sort of like society today, isn't it? First of all, there seems to be a constant threat looming uh, of some sort of a horrifying nuclear war, doesn't there? I don't know about you, I feel like in the last 10 years, it's been on the news that nuclear war was imminent like four times or something like that. And that's concerning, but that's not the main thing, is it? Our oppression isn't so much a physical threat uh, as a mental threat, isn't it? Uh, This past week, I read an article on nervous breakdowns. The article talked about how today, it seems that much of society is on the brink of a nervous breakdown. And I think, if you think about it, if you think of the news, if you think about just the state of the world, that, that seems true. People seem to be on edge, don't they? Unemployment is high. Housing and food prices are rising. People keep on throwing around around the world recession, many more things like this. And people have so much on their minds, they just can't find hope or peace. And uh, the article put it this way. Mentally, so many of us, we're living paycheck to paycheck. And it doesn't take much before we become overdrawn. It seems that at any moment we could discover that for the past month or year, we've been drawing from resources that we simply didn't possess. But what we need to realize is this is nothing new. Sometimes we pretend this is brand new. That's not really the case, is it? Mental breakdowns, you might be surprised to find out, I was. Mental breakdowns were fairly commonplace well over 100 years ago. In the 1880s, doctors were warning of an epidemic of nervousness around the world, throughout the people. In the 1880s, in 1935, an article was written that said that the nervous breakdown was as widespread as the common cold and the chief source of misery in the modern world. As one author put it over 70 years ago, you aren't crazy, the world is. The modern world is simply too much for man to handle. People feel burdened simply by normal life. They feel oppressed. Many people feel on the brink of being overwhelmed. And if they're not careful, they feel that they might fall into despair or destruction and pain and suffering. And this passage sheds a little bit of light on that issue. and shows it truly isn't a recent thing, even though their oppression was so much more vivid. It was more physical. You see, what Judah didn't realize, and what we so often fail to realize, is the situation is actually far worse than we care to admit. Far, far worse than we realize. You see, we think, and Judah thought, that darkness and despair might be knocking at the door. But the horrible truth, brothers and sisters, is that darkness and suffering and despair had overcome them long ago. You can see that in particular in Judah's response to this looming threat of war. We just read that together. Second Chronicles 28. We met the man in charge, King Ahaz. And he's not quite as well known as King David or King Solomon. You might have heard of them. Uh, but uh, Ahaz is a name that we ought to know, especially for this passage today. You could call Ahaz the desperate king. I wonder if you got that sense as we read that passage together. He had frantically run to any god or any king or any person to save him. Anyone except the true god who could actually save him. And we saw this in our reading. 
Uh, starting at verse 1 of Second Chronicles 28, we saw Ahaz was just 20 years old when he began to reign. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He made metal images for the Baals. That's what people did when they were trying really hard to impress Baal and make Baal happy with them. Usually, uh, uh, idols for Baal were made of wood or stone. He tried really hard to impress various gods. We read together in verse 3 the horrifying thing that he did. He burned his sons, his children, a gift from the Lord. He burned his sons as an offering. According to the abominations of the nations, the Lord drove out before them. And we read in verse 4, He sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. King Ahaz was frantic. He was looking anywhere except for the right place for help. And for his idolatry, God actually continued to punish him and he allowed him to be conquered. And that's the portion we didn't read. When he was attacked, Ahaz went anywhere he could looking for help. The first place he looked for help was Assyria. That horrible empire we heard of before. He went and he paid them a bribe to come and fight his enemies for him. And unsurprisingly to us in hindsight, Assyria turned on him. And what, this desperate, what did this desperate king do? He took the treasures from the Lord's temple to try bribing them again. And it did not help. Finally, the desperate king Ahaz, as we read at the end of the chapter, he bent his knee, but not before the God of Israel. Instead, he worshipped the God of Syria, who had just defeated him before, thinking, well, the gods help Syria, they might help me too. And eventually, Ahaz shut God's temple altogether and promoted the worship of every other god. And all this to say, brothers and sisters, Judah was already in darkness. They were already overwhelmed. Judah was terrified. They didn't know where to go for hope. They didn't know where to go for help or for peace. They were terrified of their enemies and darkness coming in and overwhelming them. They would run to anyone for help, even though that only made things worse. They were so scared of falling into darkness and suffering and despair. But what they failed to realize, that darkness and suffering and despair swallowed them up a long time ago. Does Ahaz seem to you like a man on the brink of succumbing to darkness and despair and hopelessness? Not really. How about Judah? They had lost these things long ago. And the same thing is true of the world around us today, if we think about it. The world is in darkness. People are suffering. They're not just running from it. They're not just keeping ahead of it. And this is implicit in our text in Isaiah chapter 1, isn't it? We read there uh, about people walking in darkness. That is, they're living their whole lives every day again in darkness. They're walking away from the Lord and His Word, which is our light, which is our hope, which is our peace. Either they're not knowing who God is or they're not caring, but they're trying to get ahead and trying to prosper. They're trying to find their own light, their own joy, their own peace, and they're utterly unable to do it. And Isaiah tells us the result in verse 4, again, implicitly. There he speaks of a people's yoke, a piece of wood put on your neck to carry heavy burdens, the people's yoke and their burden. He speaks of a heavy staff pushing down on their shoulders. He speaks of the rod of their oppressors 
beating against their backs. The people are already overwhelmed, not just on the brink of a breakdown. The people are already oppressed. They didn't even know it. This was true of the Jewish people, but it was even more true of the Gentiles. What we'll see in this passage, we'll hear more about it later, is this message wasn't just for the Jewish people, it was also for the Gentiles. But did the Gentiles realize they were walking in darkness? Did they realize they were hopeless? No, they probably didn't realize. But it was true, they needed to. As we see in this passage, they too needed God to graciously send them light. They needed God to give them peace and hope and joy. They they didn't realize, they probably felt like they could stay ahead of the darkness themselves. They didn't realize they were already in it. And brothers and sisters, the same can be true of us. We can wonder, why am I so tired? Why is the world so evil? Why is there so much darkness outside? So much darkness, I don't even want to hear about it all. I don't even want to turn on the news. Why is there so much darkness within? Why am I so burdened by guilt and sin and shame? Why is there so much suffering out there and in here? The bad news for us in this passage is we're not succeeding like we might think at keeping the darkness at bay. We're not just keeping it out. It's already spread. And without Christ, we're not just holding on to our hope and joy and peace by our fingertips. The truth is, without Christ, we don't have peace and hope and joy. Not really. Before the good news, we need the bad news. Without God, without His grace, people are walking in oppressive darkness. Suffering is everywhere. The darkness isn't just outside of them, but within them. And we bring it into every situation, every day, even if we try and run from it. We can't outrun it. We can't hide from it. We need someone, we need God to defeat it. And on our own, we like Judah and the nations are oppressed and in overwhelming gloom and darkness. On our own, there is no peace with man. On our worst, on their own, we have no peace with God. And someday we'll become so aware of that fact if we remain uh, without peace with God. The, word stru- the world struggles and groans under sin, and we can feel it. And the truth is, like Judah, rebellious people like we heard about last week, they deserve it. And brothers and sisters, God could have stopped the story there. God could have just withdrawn from us and left us in oppressive darkness that we were denying even exists. But our God, your God, and my God, he, he didn't want to stop the story there. He doesn't want to leave us oppressed, filled with darkness, overwhelmed by suffering that we have no answer to. And that's why God steps in with the words of Isaiah 9 verse 1, with the message of our second point, the liberation by the light. He says there, God assures us, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Starting with Zebulun and Naphtali, we need to realize those were the two places that were accused of being the most sinful They were at the uppermost part, the the northern part of Israel. They were the first ones destroyed by the Assyrians. They were taken off to exile quickly and replaced, mixed in with the Gentiles. Well, God says, starting there, in the darkest place of Israel, starting there, God's people's gloom would be turned to glory. In the deep, deep darkness, a light would appear. And not just a little glimmer of light, is it? That's not what we read in this text. You can think of being trapped in a cave. Maybe uh, if you saw a little glimmer of light, there would be some hope to grasp onto. That's not the picture we get here, is it? Verse 2. 
The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. The words here are not uh, faint lights. The word for shining is a, a great, powerful light, like the sunrise. You can think of the darkest, deepest night, followed by a magnificent sunrise. Though this light we read of here, that God is sending, it's brighter than one or two or 10,000 suns. And as the light appears, you can picture it, the darkness begins to flee. When the people have wandered and trapped themselves in darkness, God could have left them there, but instead he intervenes with a dazzlingly bright light to split open the darkness. And we know, of course, we have the answers in the back of the book, the New Testament. We know this was fulfilled with the coming of Christ. In Matthew 4, we read about Jesus and he, when he settled down and started preaching. You know where he settled down and started preaching? It was in Zebulun and Naphtali, in Galilee of the nations. He, he was the light that split open the darkness, the light who would bring liberation both to Jews and to Gentiles, to all the nations. And that's who Isaiah is talking about here. Jesus, to be born in the time of Matthew, to be born uh, over 700 years after this text was written. This was a future hope that Isaiah, that God, was giving to his afflicted people. But there's something very strange about that, isn't there? That this text was fulfilled 700 years plus after. Read with me verses 2 to 4, or at least portions of it. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. It says, God, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. Then later, the yoke, the staff, the rod, it says, you have broken. You notice what's so strange about that? A text talking about 700 years in the future. It's all in the past tense. Isn't that weird? How can this be? The Israelites were still away from the Lord. They were still in darkness. The worst of the oppression had not even come yet. The oppression was going to get so much darker, so much worse, when the Lord let them be taken into exile. They would be conquered by Babylon and Assyria. Their numbers would be the smallest they had ever been. Their joy would seem non-existent. Yet Isaiah reassures them with these promises in the past tense. How can that be? Well, I wonder uh, this afternoon, have you ever heard the phrase, consider it done? Consider it done. The idea is that even though you haven't actually done it yet, you assure someone you will get it done. And they can be so sure of that, they can trust you so much that you want them to put it completely out of their mind. Just go on living as though it's already in the past. Consider it done. And that's what Isaiah, that's what God is doing here for his people. He's giving them comfort before their greatest affliction. He's telling them it's already taken care of. God has said that he's going to do what he mentions in this passage. And so we can talk about it in the past tense. Because already back then it was already certain. It's already done. And so what could the Jews in Isaiah's day and what can we together today consider done? 
Well, God says in this passage, he has given a marvelous light, one that extinguishes all the darkness, all the darkness we heard about earlier in our, uh, our oppressive first point. This light has come, and it's so sure. We can already feel its joy and warmth. God's already promising it as though it's in the past for these people. More than that, God says we can consider the darkness reversed, chased away as if by a great light. God says in verse 3, to consider the nation multiplied. Again, this would have been shocking back then. Israel was small and fractured and fighting against each other, only getting smaller. They were about to spend decades in exile. And after 70 years, only a fraction, only a tiny remnant would return. You remember, I hope, when we heard about that in the book of Haggai. But God says, he has multiplied the nation more than ever before. Consider it done. This light, Jesus Christ, who would come in the darkness, he would bring light to the nation, light to the Gentiles, and he would bring them into the nation of Israel, into the church. People from every tongue and tribe and nation. God has made his nation huge. Huger than we can possibly imagine. Next, God says, he has increased its joy. Again, in verse 3. He had increased it more than it had ever been. So how can this be? Well, God is saying, trust me. For them, and for me, and for you, God is saying he has secured great, lasting True, deep joy. Future joy that will put any past joy to shame. Take a look at the middle of verse 3. And God gives us a couple of illustrations. He says that he has increased their joy as with joy at the harvest. And now, I don't know if we're very familiar with harvests. I certainly am not. But imagine it for a second. After months of hard, tiring work, finally the farming community altogether celebrates. They come into town with wagons full of their harvest, of fruits from the field. Uh, they, they come together for a huge feast with their fruit and wheat and the, the, the fruit of all their labors. And finally, together, they have a chance to just sit back, party, relax, and enjoy what they, God has given them. And so much more than that, God goes on. He says you have joy as at the harvest, but more joy than that. He says they're glad as when they divide the spoil as well. And so God is combining the huge joy of a harvest feast, uh, a party, and also the joy of a great victory. Again, the horses and wagons coming into the city, picture them loaded with plunder. They have food, they have the riches, the gold, the silver, the weapons of their enemies in tow. You can imagine husbands and fathers and brothers and sons. They're coming home and they're celebrating. Finally, they have peace. And more than just peace, they have plenty. They're so excited to give out the spoils to all those around them. Can you imagine the joy? Well, God says already now, already to these people about to go into exile, this joy is yours. It's yours, it's mine. Consider it done. More than that, God says your yoke and your burden, all the things you feel weighing you down, your burden of oppression, your burden of sin or guilt and shame, I, I don't know your burden today. Only you know that. 
about your enemies, the devil who lurks at your doorway, the hurt and depression and anxiety in your life, your yoke and burden from around your neck, the staff from your shoulder, the rod beating your back. But we read here that God has broken them. Your burden, your yoke, your suffering, it's shattered. Consider it done. Consider yourself completely free from the devil. Consider yourself completely free from your sin. Consider yourself pouring out and basking in the spoils, the joy and delight that Christ himself has won for you. Celebrating in the victory of your king. Consider yourself delivered by God himself with a mighty hand. Just as we read in verse 4. Just as on the day of Midian. You remember the day of Midian? I hope that you do. What a great day. You might remember from the book of Judges. You remember Gideon's great victory there. I think Pastor Aiden might have preached on it not that long ago. Uh, Gideon, he gathered together the troops because the Midianites were there. They were there in huge numbers. You can read about it. Their camels were like the the sand on the seashore. Their numbers were like a plague of locusts, we read in Judges. So Gideon, at God's command, musters up an army. Very kind of pitiful one. 32,000 people. And what does God say to him? That sounds like 3,100, 700 too many. Send them home. And God sends out Gideon with 300 men. So these men must be strong. They must be armed to the teeth, right? No. Do you remember what God sent these men out with? He sent them out uh, armed with jars and trumpets. John Calvin says these 300 men were armed so they might scarcely defeat a mouse. And with this, God routed the Midianites, the biggest armory they could muster. In this way, you and I and the Israelites, we can consider the battle against our enemies won. And not just for a little while. God says the battle's won once and for all. Our fighting is done for good. That's what we see in verse 5. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What God is saying there is your army boots, the warrior's garments, burn them. Throw them in the fire. You don't need them anymore. Isaiah has already mentioned a few chapters before this in Isaiah chapter 2 uh, about swords being repurposed, beat into plowshares, spears being uh, beat into pruning hooks. So God says your war, your fighting, consider it done forever. Throw the last items of war on the bonfire and never see them again. And this is a shocking message for Judah, isn't it? We've already said Judah is about to be defeated. They're about to go into exile. And it's shocking for us too, isn't it? Is the fighting done for Christians today? Is it really? Is the war over? We know we still have to fight against sin and weakness and temptation every day. Our flesh is still at war. We're divided too, kind of like Israel was. Uh, We're trying to pull away further from God, further into the darkness, or at least our flesh is. The world does the same through everything from education to politics to entertainment, pulling us away from God. And all the while, the devil himself, we have the horrifying picture. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
The battle, it seems, is still raging, and it is. It is for them too. And it seems that we're outnumbered, and we're outmatched, and we're in trouble. Consider it done? How can this be? Consider ourselves great victors, celebrating with unimaginable joy already today, simply dividing up the spoils our king has won, and enjoying the fruit of our labors. How can we do this? It's because God has said, consider it done. And this is how he's done it. God says, verse 6, not word for word, but he says in essence, I have commissioned a baby. A baby. Read in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Just that far for now. And yes, Judah, yes, brothers and sisters, consider it done. Consider your suffering as if it's over. Consider your struggle with man over. Consider your struggle with the devil finished. Consider your struggle against God that we heard about last week. Consider that over. Consider your struggle with your own self over. Turn to God and trust him and find everlasting joy and peace because God has sent a baby. And it seems kind of anticlimactic, doesn't it? Especially you can imagine for the people in Isaiah's day. Can't you imagine them asking God maybe for something a little bit bigger? Maybe an army? How about a weapon of mass destruction? But no, God says, he'll send a baby, a child. But not just any child. God will send you. He will send me a deliverer. He will send for you his very own son. Consider it done. Because God has given you his boy, Jesus Christ. And this boy is not any boy. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor, first of all. No one's like this child. When you have a conflict with your wife or with another person or uh, with your child or anyone, where might you go for help? Often we'll go to a counselor, won't we? We'll go to someone wise, someone who can give us advice. Well, this baby, he will be a wonderful counselor. His wisdom will be like no others. When he speaks, people will be amazed that he knows them that he understands them, that he, he knows sin and temptation and can lead them back to God. No one will be like this wonderful counselor. He will be able to bring peace again. Wouldn't it be great if counselors could bring true peace between us and man or us and God? This counselor can. In fact, this counselor will himself, this baby will himself be mighty God. He will have the full power of the Trinity behind him. He'll be called an everlasting father. And that's why weapons can be done away with for good. This child, he's never going to go away. He will watch over us and care for us forever with a perfect fatherly care. He's caring over us this very day. Finally, in summary, we're told, this baby, he will grow. He will be the prince of peace. And peace means not just a lack of conflict, but the presence of joy and abundance and hope. In him, in this baby, 
We will and we do have all that we need today and every day again. In verses 7 to 8, we read that he'll rule perfectly with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And you and I, what do we have to do? Consider it done. Why? Because of the last line of our passage. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Zeal. Zeal is a great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a a cause. I'll say it again. Zeal is a great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause. So this lasting peace between you and me and uh, between us and God, this is God's great cause. This is what he's pursuing enthusiastically. Can you imagine that? The Lord of heaven's armies, that's what the Lord of hosts means. The Lord of heaven's armies, he has decided to accomplish this. The Lord of all, he's purposed himself with resolve to give pure and lasting peace to you and to me. He wants peace and comfort and hope for all of his afflicted people forever. The Lord himself has resolved in his mind with energy and enthusiasm to set you free. To set me free. What a gracious God we have. And brothers and sisters, when we read this, we should be a little bit convicted, shouldn't we? We should be put to shame when we see the zeal of the Lord. How he works so hard, so passionately to free us from darkness and to bring us back to him. Because you, me, we look at our lives. Do we fight darkness with the same zeal? As God does? Do we work as hard to free ourselves from this darkness or do we often rather wallow in the darkness? But there's good news because it doesn't depend on us. Even when we're not pursuing freedom from the darkness, the Lord of hosts is zealous to give us his light. He's zealous to give us salvation and he will accomplish it. Who could ever stop him? And so we can see that so clearly in one place. And this child, grown into a man. In Jesus Christ, there we see the zeal of the Lord to set us free, to give us lasting joy and peace. On the cross, we see to what extent God was willing to go to free us from our darkness, to free us from our oppression in a way that we already now could consider it done. Others, other people, to free themselves from oppression, they were willing to go to war, to build bigger armies and get more powerful weapons, trying to oppress their oppressors. But God shows here, he's taking another approach. He loves you and me so much, even when we were fighting against him. But he loved us so much when we were oppressed by sin and shame that he was willing to give us a gift, a Christmas gift. His very own son, his boy. We read in Ephesians 2 that one day this little baby would grow up. And he, when he rose, uh, grew, grew up, he would put the hostility between us, between us and God, to death. He would take all of our sin and shame and darkness upon himself and he would feel it. He would take upon himself the darkness of hell for you, for me, so we would never have to. He had put it all to death to leave us only with his light and blessing. And so now that we see this darkness around us still lingering, even still lingering within us, we can look to God's son, Jesus Christ, this baby, this child, and we can 
miraculously, consider it done. Consider it dealt with once and for all. That's our hope, even when the darkness is around us, even when we feel it. When we're struggling with sin, when we're struggling with darkness and despair, when it feels like in our suffering we're about to be overwhelmed, when we see the world oppressed and ourselves oppressed, we're not crazy. We're absolutely right. The sinful world is too much for us to bear. We can't save ourselves from it. But the good news is, brothers and sisters, God has taken, he is taking care of it. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. He will save his children, and whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So we're called by God's grace now to go on and shine as lights in the world. When we encounter darkness, even in our own souls, we're instructed to drag them out into the light of Jesus Christ and have God deal with them. And every time we're shocked by the darkness and gloom we find around us, or even in us, we can still have this unimaginable joy because it doesn't depend on us. We can celebrate as great victors, as workers celebrating the harvest. Because when we long for this darkness to just be gone, and we do long for that, don't we? Lord, take away the darkness. But we can look to Jesus Christ, and we can consider it done. Consider your yoke today smashed. Consider the war boots as good as burned. The harvest and the spoils of Christ that he has won. They're so close you can already taste them. Consider them yours. Our suffering is as good as over, even though we still deal with it for a while yet. Brothers and sisters, the light has shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We long for joy and peace and hope and salvation. And we can look to Christ, the little baby born in Bethlehem. And in that way, this Christmas, we can consider it done. Amen. In response, let's sing the glorious truths of our text as put to music in hymn 19, stanzas 1 to 4. <laughs>